And before I share this message this morning, I wanted to have a little bit of time of prayer for, for our moms that are here. Um, you know, I can remember growing up in church and we always did something, you know, particular for moms. I don't know if it was well-received or considered valuable or not, either a lapel pin or maybe a flower at the door. But today we want to pray for you. For the moms that are in the room, would you do this for us today just to give us a glimpse as we look around? Would our, could our moms just stand for a sec? Would you just stand up all the room, the moms that are here in this room? Thank you. Thank you. Please, please be seated. The message I'm going to share with you in just a few moments is not specific to Mother's Day or moms, but here's my segue. Here's the bridge. I'm pretty sure all the characters in the story have moms, so if we'll just go with that, if that'll be good for you. But as we, as we pray this morning, I was thinking... Mother's Day is kind of like one of our very favorite Sunday gatherings, and it's also one of our very hardest Sundays. You know, we sometimes use the word, and maybe we overuse it, the word bittersweet, but it certainly applies to Mother's Day, because some of you are thrilled that your, you know, your kids are here with you today, and you get to enjoy some time with them, or you get to spend some time with your mom, or you're going to go see her for lunch, or something like that. And there's joy in their family pictures and all those kind of things and hopefully a good meal and all that. But I know for others, it's just a lot of concentrated sadness because there are the moms in this room who've miscarried or lost older children. There are the moms in this room who's, or parents and people in this room who've lost their moms and they can't be here. There are moms of prodigals and those who have rebelled against God and the gospel and the church, and your hearts are heavy for them. There are moms in this room who wonder where their son or daughter is even today, what they're doing, and if they're okay. And I know all those things are, are weighing on your mind and on your thoughts, and I hope today that whatever that is, whatever feeling is stirred in you, particularly those ones that make today hard, that it would not cause you to push away from the church and certainly not cause you to push away from God, but run to him in our weakness he is strong where our needs are great we find him to be a great provider where we are hurting and we draw near to him we find that he welcomes us and he blesses us and he encourages us so i pray that today will be a, a good time for you with the lord and you'll use this time just to turn to him let's pray father thank you well, thank you that we can call you Father, that you love us as the perfect parent. You know us intimately. You know us better than we know ourselves, and yet you love us relentlessly, unconditionally. You know what we have need of. You know that we sometimes don't have what we could have because we don't ask. We don't approach you as the generous Father that you are who longs to give good gifts to his children. And not just material gifts, emotional gifts, support, help, encouragement, healing, comfort, strength, wisdom, all those things and more. So, Father, we draw near to you as you draw near to us, and we thank you for that. Lord, thank you for your enduring love for us. Thank you for your great patience towards us. Thank you for the hope and salvation you offer to us. And Lord, now as we take a look at your word, 
Speak to us, I pray. The sort of speaking that, that penetrates us to the point we cannot resist it anymore or deny its truth. That we know it's you. The sort of speaking that goes beyond human speaking. That connects with our hearts. The sort of speaking that penetrates our resistance or our indifference or our hurts or pains, even our unbelief, and reveals you, I pray today. Or do that for our sake. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. I had this weird dream last night. I guess this is part of pastoral anxiety. I'm not asking for your sympathy. I'm just telling you. But I dreamt, you know, because I had all these pieces in my mind moving, you know, you get these parent-child dedication pieces, and it's Mother's Day, and I know at Mother's Day, um, one thing that you may not be aware of that I am, but you have a tendency to look at your watches a lot more frequently on Mother's Day, and so I got all this, I know the line at Zach starts to build, and I know, you know, Golden Corral gets sort of packed out, and all those things, you got all these anxieties coming, so I had this dream, and it was real, and I imagined all of you here in this room, and then as soon as the parent-child dedication was over, you all left, (laughs) and there were only a handful of you. And then somehow, miraculously, we were in the other room, we were in the sanctuary, and the things I had planned to be on the screen, well, I was trying to explain to you why you couldn't see them because the screen's there like TVs in your living room, and it was just totally anxiety for me. And I realized, here it is Mother's Day, and I picked the absolute longest text in the entire book of Acts to share with you. (laughs) And so as I share this with you this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. This is, in fact, a sermon. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts. It's longer by far than anything that Peter said or really anyone else said or Paul said. It's the sermon of of Stephen. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to let the sermon speak to you. I'm just going to read it to you, and I'm going to share some thoughts of how it applies to us at the end. But I'm not going to break down every point, explain every nuance. If it drives you deeper into scriptures, then that would be great. And I also want to give you permission today if you want to just put down your your pen and not track with all the notes. Because as I looked, I thought, wow, there are a lot of blanks there. And I'm going to be flying. And so if you want the notes, uh, we'll post them tomorrow with the answers in them if you miss anything today, so don't be anxious. Be anxious for nothing, okay? (laughs) Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Context is pretty straightforward. I mean, church is just blowing up with growth. God's blessing it like crazy. People are getting healed. Their lives are getting changed. We saw last week the gospel is so profound. It's impacting people everywhere, even priests, those who had once been opposed to it, are now embracing it. I mean, there's nobody that's being left untouched by the power of God here. And it's just multiplying. Now, you can't expect when God's doing a great work and His church is exceedingly blessed and people are coming to faith, you can't expect that Satan's going to ignore that and he's not going to recoil against it and he's not going to push back. And he does. And this is spiritual warfare. One of the reasons we ask you to pray for the church, one of the reasons we gather for prayer on Sunday mornings, is because we recognize that what happens here ultimately is a spiritual battle. This is not a TED talk. I'm telling you what I think God's word says and how we ought to apply that and do it and obey it. Meanwhile, the enemy's saying, no, don't do that. I'll fight that to the very end. And there's spiritual warfare. Your lives, your children's lives are at stake. And so we see this big pushback, this spiritual warfare against a man that we know is spirit-filled. How do we know? Because he's one of those first seven deacons chosen. And they were chosen based on two criteria. That they were full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. And here, one of those men, I mean, he just got tapped for the position. It's you that got nominated or are going to be nominated and then selected uh, by the church for deacons. Be careful what you're signing up for. He went from serving the tables of the elderly widows in the church to now standing up 
in giving this message. Here's what it says, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly investigated, instigated, I'm sorry, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses and said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's an awesome phrase. His face was like the face of an angel. Stephen is about to become the church's first martyr. His ministry as a deacon wasn't just internal, it was external. He didn't just serve the church. He served the gospel, and he's sharing the truth wherever he went. He was the powerful evangelist. It says his face was like an angel. He reflected the glory of God in his demeanor. God's glory in our lives is supposed to be like that. Like the moon reflects the glory of the sun, so too we reflect who Christ is to us. And it shows up on our faces and it comes out in our words. And we see in Stephen's life that he showed Christ. He showed the, the grace of Christ. He showed the, the power of Christ in his actions. And God was working powerfully through him. And he showed the wisdom of Christ. And all this he's exemplifying, displaying Christ. And because of that, he was about to share in the sufferings of Christ. The accusations that were false. The rejection of the message, which was severe and personal, and then death as the first martyr, Stephen reflecting Christ. What was the message he gave that stirred the people up so much that they didn't just dismiss it, but they had to silence him permanently for it? You see, Stephen lived in an age in which Christianity and the primary message of Christianity, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus was not just neutral. So you and I have lived in, a, in an era when Christ was neutral to this world, and to follow him faithfully might not raise the ire or instigate persecution of you. You might just simply be considered eccentric, peculiar, unique, weird. But we're past that era. In our culture today, we're now in the negative era. We're to follow Christ faithfully now. He's going to invite opposition. It may begin with just some mockery and ridicule. But make no mistake, eventually you're going to be on the wrong side, not just of cultural norms, but you may in fact be on the wrong side of the law. You may be on the wrong side of society itself. And pressures will, will, be, will be huge against us. Listen to his message and just let it speak and visualize what he's saying. It's an incredible overview, by the way of the entire Old Testament. He's weaving together from Genesis all the way up to the time of Christ, from the beginning of God's grace in Genesis, through the Gospels themselves, the overarching story of what God has done. Listen to what he said. Brothers 
The high priest asked him, first of all, are these things so? Are these false accusations so? Are you really saying you're going to destroy this temple? You're going to undo our religion? You're going to turn our traditions upside down? Are these things so? And Stephen said this, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I'll show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you're now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan with great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver, from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose a region of another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, he came, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? The man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affection of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent is both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. 
This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it's written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God, asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the, of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. In a stunning overview of their history, Stephen is used by God to give a message of judgment. And I want you to understand just for a moment as I just quickly fly over this passage. This is not the sort of passage that's used to gently win people over. This is not the sort of passage that was used to winsomely persuade this was a sort of necessary statement given to a people who had so bent their will against God had so locked themselves into their rebellion and their rejection that the only message left for them is a message of impending and certain judgment barring their repentance it's a message that a defiant increasingly resistant no, dare I say, rebellious generation has to hear. This is the truth of God. Here's what he says to Israel. He says, our whole story is a story of God's glory and, and grace, repeatedly revealed to us. Again and again, God shows himself to us. Over and over, he provides for us. He sovereignly chooses Abraham. Not because of Abraham, but because of God's goodness, he chooses Abraham, and through Abraham, all of us, because through Abraham, he's going to be a blessing to all the earth. He makes a covenant with Abraham, and he honors it and protects it through multiple generations. If you've been with us through our study of Genesis, you've seen how often mankind would have fumbled the ball, but it's God who keeps his promise to us. He delivered his people out of captivity in Egypt through Moses. Moses, whom they initially rejected and said, who are you to lead us? He showed his glory in giving of the law to guide them, a law that Stephen says was a living oracle, a living word of God for your life 
follow this and live. This is all God's grace to us. But despite God's goodness and grace, through many generations, our entire history of God's patient dealings with us, despite that, you have repeatedly rebelled against him. And you've rejected his messengers over and over. You can just imagine the emotional daggers. You rejected Joseph, and you rejected Moses, and you killed the prophets, and you beheaded John the Baptist, and, and you rejected Jesus. He says, you're next. No. He says, you're like Joseph's brothers who refused him. You're like the Hebrew captives. You're like the idolatrous worshipers. God delivers you out, and then you want to build a golden calf and worship that? He says, you're like all of them. And the result is, in your rebellion, you've settled on a man-made religion or a deviant religion that only has a, a shadow of what God intended. And you settle for something that's empty and godless, simply a form of religion, but not the real thing. And it's left you in darkness and sin. You have the law, he says, this living law of God, but you've not kept it. As a result, your necks are stiff. You no longer bow. There's no humility in you. Your ability to respond to God's grace is nearly gone. He says your hearts are uncircumcised. He says God has given you the symbol of circumcision, the mark of the covenant he made with you. But what does God really want? Not just a physical change of the body, not just a mark identifying allegiance. He wants a changed heart. And he says your hearts are uncircumcised change you bear the mark externally but the mark that counts you have not he says you always resist god you've been resisting him generation after generation after generation after generation and now at the peak the apex of your rebellion and rejection far more significant than rejecting the line of the patriarchs. Far more significant than rejecting Moses. Far more significant even than turning your backs on the law that God had given. You now have rejected the very Son of God, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. And as Jesus himself made clear in the Gospels, once Christ is rejected, there are no messengers left. He is the final revelation of God. He's the fullness of God in human form. All of these prophets, all of these messengers, all of these means by which God has shown you who he is and what he wants from you and how you ought to live and how you ought to honor him culminate in the coming of Christ, the gospel of Christ. The kingdom of God is here, so repent. Believe the good news and follow me, Jesus says. When you reject the king... There is no more. There's no more hope. There's not another messenger to come. There's not another means. There is not another Messiah. Listen to their response. The response to the rebellious. When he paints for them accurately their own history. And you think about this just for a moment. Scripture gives no indication that he was interrupted at all. I, I can imagine all those religious leaders around him and all that crowd that may have gathered or dumbfounded. They can't deny what he said. And they can't deny the heart with which he said it. He's full of grace with a face like an angel. He lays down the hardest of truths for them. 
when they hear it, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. I mean, they, they were apoplectic. There's your word for the day. They didn't know what to do with themselves. They were so angry, their response was not just internal, it was external. This is a seething rage at what he said. But again, the scripture makes plain it, it wasn't at his personality or his demeanor. It was at the truth. They raged at it. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. What was their response? In a word, rage. Rage. The message had so hit home. To say that it struck a nerve would be a gross understatement. It so hit the center of their hearts that only two possibilities remained. Only two. Repentance or rage. That's when you know that you've heard the truth completely, unfiltered. Indifference is not a possibility here. No one heard what Stephen said and responded, eh, I'm not sure I agree. Eh, I don't know what to make of that. Whatever you say. Rage or repentance. And look at the heart of the message. I said at the beginning that Stephen so represented Christ in this moment, even down to his last words, Father, don't hold this against them. Though the message was nothing but powerful and certain judgment, a message that was harsh and painful to bear, truth unvarnished, it was his desire all the way through that it would bring repentance. And even in the end, in their grossest of acts, rejecting yet another messenger, which would become the pattern for the next couple of centuries of persecution and execution of God's messengers. He prayed. He prayed for their repentance. This rage led to Stephen's murder. This wasn't a trial. This had no semblance of justice even to first century norms this was a reactive response of rage 
When he said it, they closed their ears, they rushed out, and they pushed him out of the city, and they began to pick up rocks. And that's how they killed him. The result was intense persecution and a scattering of the church. We'll talk about persecution and scattering and the providence of God in future weeks. It was God's intention, by the way, ultimately, that the church would scatter. And we'll see that even in that gross first century persecution, just as God has done in every generation since, persecution only serves the purposes of the gospel. Satan can't stop it. Jesus said that he couldn't. Jesus said, this is my church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. No, no matter what barricades Satan puts up around his kingdom, the church will penetrate them and break them down. Well, beyond being just a powerful story, an emotional story, there are some important takeaways for us as Christians today. If you're listening to this and you're on the other side of the equation, um, not a believer yet, maybe someone who's heard the stories of God and the gospel, you've heard about Jesus and what Jesus has done, you've heard the demands or the claims, you just never responded to them. There's something you need to understand from this text on the biggest of scales. God is profoundly, but not permanently patient with the rebellious. He's profoundly patient, but he's not permanently patient. In other words, there is a time where judgment will ensue for sin. And because it doesn't happen immediately, because it doesn't happen as we expect it to happen, we, like many others, wrongly assume that it will not happen, that it does not happen. But the story that Stephen is giving is God's great patience over many generations and God's dealings with them, sometimes with harshness, but always with patience, to bring them back, to bring them back, to bring them back. But at some point, patience gives way to judgment. Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, here's the great irony. Someone named Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned these words. He was the guy holding the coats as Stephen was stoned. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Is that you listening? Do you presume upon it? Because, because you've rejected it? Because you've rebelled against it? Because you've mocked it? Because you've held it in no esteem? Do you presume upon his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, or unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. It's coming. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. It's not different than Stephen's message. The second takeaway is this. None of us should presume upon God's grace. Believer or unbeliever, we shouldn't presume upon God's grace. We, we shouldn't assume that God, who's so merciful and so kind and so forbearing, will always give grace. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote of one of those rebellions that Stephen spoke of. You can read about it in the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But he says these things were written as an example for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Don't presume upon God's grace. Eventually, consequences always come for evil. He says, don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The play is a 
euphemism for the gross sin, the sexual sort of sin that was surrounding that sort of pagan idolatry. He said, this is what they did. He said, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That's when they rejected Moses. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Don't presume upon grace. Third challenge for us today is don't mistake empty religion for authentic devotion. One of the greatest devices that Satan has used in human history is imitation religion. Something that has a semblance of the real thing. Something that may even have the form and structure of the real thing. But it's decidedly a deviation from what's true and real. What does God really want from us? That we would simply go through the motions? That we would say the right things? That we would show up at the right times? That we would give the right amounts? That we'd be able to recite the right statements? Is that what it really means to follow Christ? Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. They honor me with their lips. They know the right things to say. Their praises may be on point. Their songs may be biblically sound. Their, their gatherings may look and feel right. But the heart is what's far from me. And a heart far from God cannot worship God. So he said, in vain do they worship me. It is so foolish for us to think that God honors any sort of worship. Good intentions. That we made the effort. Well, I could be doing something else. I could be somewhere else. I say this wanting you to be here, but if your heart's far from him, you might as well be doing something else. Or be somewhere else. Because he says, in vain do they worship me. How do we do this? Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Those Jews of the first century, those Jewish religious leaders, were experts at that. The essence of the law is to love God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. And the second commandment is like the first, and love your neighbors yourself. And so when you extrude the love for God, the heart that he wants, our deep affections for him, and the effect that a heart bent towards God has on its neighbor loving them, when you remove that and replace it with forms, commands, structures, you've lost the sense of the thing. You've lost the heart of the thing. You've lost authentic devotion. Stephen was speaking about empty religion. It wasn't God's intention to undo first century Judaism in Christ. It was to fulfill it. Not to undo the Old Testament, but to complete it. To to bring about the realization of every promise of it, the covenants of God fulfilled and satisfied in Christ, and to graft us in as his covenant people today. And there's a final takeaway, and I'll leave you with this one this morning. It's the one that stands as the backdrop for this entire text. 
Stephen the martyr. I think about this for a moment. Imagine speaking something that you know in the speaking of it. You're going to get more than pushback. You're going to get persecution. You know it's going to be coming. Now, how did Stephen know? Because we've already seen the arrests, Peter and James. We've already seen the beatings. We, we've already seen the pressure. We, we've already seen the laws given, don't speak in this man's name anymore. I mean, we've seen that any person now in that context, in that church, who opens their mouth, identifying with Christ, telling the good news of Christ, calling people to repentance and faith in Christ. They know there's going to be a cost involved, and yet they continue. I mean, the implication of that for us is so obvious, it's so apparent. You may not be able to be well-liked and be socially acceptable, and you may call some of your social media followers to be faithful to Christ. Will you? Will you go beyond just being considered eccentric and out there? What about when your beliefs make you an enemy of the state? An opponent of progress? A perceived hater of people? Even when you don't. Even when, like Stephen, you'll say the hardest, most necessary things because it's true. Meanwhile, wanting God not to hold it against them, but that God would bring them, them to repentance. And even in this message, <laughs> here's Stephen standing there. I'm sorry I said Peter, I meant Stephen. Here's Stephen standing there. And in the middle, before he's even finished, he gets a vision from heaven. I mean, you're talking about the graceful touch of God, the comforting hand of God. I mean, you get what's going on there, right? God is sending him a vision saying, you know what's about to come. This is your last sermon, Stephen. He opens up heaven. And instead of silencing him, like maybe I should stop here. I just saw my life flash before my eyes. The vision of Christ in glory with arms out, ready to receive him. I mean, what a gift of grace that was for him because he got to see the reward before it came. And so he finished. He finished the message. And he finished it strong. Simple challenge for each of us is this. And maybe it's not quite as valuable for us today, here in this first week of May in 2022, but store this one away because it will be one day. Whatever it costs, know that Jesus is worth it. Whatever it costs you to be faithful, to be vocal, to be public, to be true, to maintain allegiance and loyalty to Jesus is worth it. I'll close with just a few encouraging scriptures, and then I'm going to pray. In the words of Jesus, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Men like Stephen. 
Paul wrote to Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll also deny us. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal let's pray father god raise up among us among our sons and daughters Stevens, for this generation, for a time such as this, for a time such as this, may we know the gospel, the story of your redemption. May we love you enough to be faithful to you, no matter the cost. And Father, it's easy for us to get jaded and cynical, even angry and vengeful towards the culture around us. Father, make our hearts like Stephen's. We want to reflect Jesus. We want Jesus to be seen on our face. But we also want the truth of Jesus to be heard in our words. And Father, if it's your will, we'd love to see the power of Jesus reflected in our deeds. Not for our sake. For Stephen did all those things, not for earthly glory, but for, but for the face of Jesus. He lived before the face of Jesus. Father, may we do that as well. Always before your face. Always reckoning rightly what's worth it and what's not. What's true and what's false. What we will give our lives for versus what we might frittered away on. And Lord, we pray that we could begin to see the same sort of results in our day, many coming to faith, many lives changed, even the least likely and unlikely. For their sake, for your glory, these things we pray.